Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit down over coffee and have a personal face-to-face conversation with Jesus? In our eight-week series, Conversations with Jesus, we explore just that. Pull up a chair and listen in as Pastor Ron shares with us what that really did look like. Church family, um, it's very, very good to be with you this morning. So I am getting ready. It's early in the morning, getting ready to come to church, get everything. And I've got my, my wheels are always spinning fast in the morning when on Sundays. And um, I hop in the car and I get about five blocks away from our house and I get this phone call. So I pull over to the side. Wasn't that good? I pull over to the side and, um, and I... And I didn't get it in time, and I noticed it was my wife, which means I've forgotten something. And um, I'm searching my brain, what have I forgotten, what have I forgotten? You know, I got my Bible, I got, my, yeah, I got everything, and then I realized I've forgotten the most important thing, my son. <laughs> I, for, <laughs> I, I forgot Andrew. So I get back, and I, you know, turn around and go back to the house, I'm thinking, oh, I'm so sorry, son, I forgot, I forgot you, you know? I forgot the most important thing. And then this morning, I'm hoping that you do not forget the most important thing. We've been in this series of Jesus having conversations with people, demonstrating things for them and for us, and speaking out truth in people's lives. And he's focusing on this most important thing. In the book of John, every chapter is leading that way. It's toward the change of allegiance and the placing of my faith in Christ. Away from my own stuff, the things that I can rely on so easily, and the relationships that I once had faith in, my bank account or my capacity. Or, there's a long list of stuff that God is calling every person out of to place their allegiance where it really should be and where it's going to give life to. Now, I've got a a true confession to make. I grew up in this really great home. Uh, Parents who love the Lord made a lot of great decisions, invested my sister and I, but my dad was a sinner. I mentioned this actually in the first service. He was sitting right over there. And one of the expressions of his sin was that he passed on to me the uh, rooting, the fandom of the Dodgers. <laughs> and so I, I grew up, you know, an innocent child, not knowing any better, listening to the dulcet tones of that wonderful storyteller, Vin Scully, who would describe the smell of the grass and the crack of the bat and, and the crowd screaming. And I, I became unknowingly a fan of the Dodgers. And then I grew to a man. I grew up and I moved away from that area. I went down to to San Diego. Now, when you live in San Diego, like I did, I was circled with a group of friends, great friends, and we could go to Padre games for like two bucks. And we would go to a bunch of Padre fans. And and eventually my friends and and, uh, just the being there and knowing the the players, I, I started to shift allegiances. Although... If you're a fan of the Padres, you you have to do something. You have to really give up hope. (laughs) 
because anytime they, they get some good player, unless his name is Tony Gwynn, they're going to sell him off. And so, you know, I struggle with that, but my allegiance has changed over the 20 plus years I was in the San Diego area. And I started rooting, you know, for this, the Padres. And then I realized over the course of time that, you know, every owner of major league franchises, they, they're in it for the bucks, you know, and it doesn't really matter. I was really just a, a fan of the baseball. I love baseball. And so I, you know, we moved again and we went to Michigan and I, I rooted on the Tigers there. And then I, and then I found a light. I, I moved to the area here. A friend of mine just last week, he, he took me to a the Giants game, and I rooted on with all my heart, the Giants to win, I know, whatever. And, um, and I just, I love baseball, right? I, I love a good game. And, but my allegiances over time, as I grew, they shifted. Now, that allegiance, that's, you know, it's fun. But it's not the heart of things, is it? The heart of things, according to God's word, is the allegiance I have to Jesus, the allegiance, that this change of perspective and heart that I grow through, where I, I stop trusting in myself and in the things, and stop trusting in the relationships, even the ones that are important to me, and I place my full trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And every chapter in the book of John, every conversation that we've been having leads that direction. And now we find ourselves in this fabulous conversation that Jesus has in John chapter 20. Would you turn there with me? I'm going to read it. We're going to dive in and listen to what the Lord says about our allegiances. John chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some gathered around you, or hopefully you've got the app on whatever device you brought with you. We're going to start in verse 19. This happens, context here, this happens right after the execution, the trial, the execution, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The more forceful and compelling proof that draws my allegiance away from stuff to Christ. It's Easter. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands 
and the mark of the nails and placed my finger into the mark of the nails and placed my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So um, the scene is the disciples, early followers, small group and people were trying to follow Jesus and figure out in the midst of their confusion and anxiety what's going on and fear is swirling around. They are convinced after seeing firsthand the torture and execution of their best friend that their lives are at risk because they were known as followers of Jesus and they're hiding in this room and they have no idea what the future holds. They, they're just caught up in the moment of their fear and anxiety And into this scene steps Jesus. That's a pretty big shock. And the first thing out of his mouth is, peace be with you. It's one of my Lord's favorite sayings. If you read through the Gospels, if you read through Scripture, you know that he just loves to say it and he keeps on saying it. Why? Because we in our frailty and our humanity. We keep losing sight of what's secure for us and what we should trust. And we need to hear it from him again and again and again. And so he says it, shalom, peace be with you. He's already said in John 14, before his death and resurrection, peace I leave with you, not as the world will give you, not the kind that says, just ignore all the hard things in life and forget about that. or Don't really wrestle or deal with the things that you're struggling with or place your security in something that will not last and be insecure, but everybody else is doing it, so go there. That's not peace. That's not what he's talking about. Not as the world gives you, but actually real peace, confidence in the power and the strength of God to be your refuge and security, to be eternally your rock. Peace with you, he says. And they're happy. They're glad. They're excited about this. Overwhelmed, of course, you know, because he says, look at this. I want you to see the physical proof of my hands and my side. And then because they haven't fully caught it again and they need to hear it again, he repeats it. Peace be with you. And by the way, you're going to need that because I'm sending you out. You're going to get out of this room, and I've got a mission that's going to be pretty overwhelming, so I'll say it again. Peace. Find your security in what I'm saying and who I am 
and my power to rise from the dead. Find your strength and your refuge there. Your soul is to go through persecution, not to avoid it. Rest your confidence in my promises, in my word, because they're sure and true, and you're going to need to remember them. You're going to need to remember this moment where I stand before you and I'm showing you myself that I actually did rise from the dead. You're going you're to need this, so peace. And then he breathes on them. Strange, right? But it's a reminder John is giving us of Genesis chapter 2 of the new creation work that God does to give life. And so he helps them see it firsthand as the Holy Spirit comes and infuses those first disciples with his presence and with his comfort and with his power. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Well, that's good, right? That's really great news. So peace, yeah, that's, that's great. And the Spirit of God, that's really great because now as a person, as a child of this new creation, it's not peace away from the world, but to engage the world with this gospel because he's being Jesus is sending out these disciples, and they need the Holy Spirit to be able to communicate the gospel. This is good. Well, that's great. But then the forgiveness of sin stuff in verse 23? Huh? What, what is that about? Did you see that verse? Verse 23, Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Is he giving them, these early disciples, some kind of corner on the market of forgiveness? Is he giving spiritual leaders or a church some authority that others don't have to be the intercessor between God and man? No, that's not true. We know this from scripture, that only Jesus Christ is the intercessor, the mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator, between God and man, and that is the Son, Jesus Christ. So what's being said here? What is Jesus saying and communicating? When you study God's word and when you understand scripture, it's imperative that you catch the meaning of the language and the context in which it's said. So what's the meaning and the context? That word that Jesus is giving, forgiveness, means to set free or to release, release from bondage. Jesus has been speaking out throughout the Gospels that a person, when they place their full allegiance and confidence in Jesus, they experience the forgiveness of sins. Through the power of what Jesus did on the cross, I can experience forgiveness, release, be set free from this. And If I don't do that, if I don't place my confidence in the Lord Jesus, then the opposite happens. I am still enslaved. I am still held captive. I am not set free. Jesus is connecting this mission that his disciples would now have to be sent out of that room and to communicate the gospel to the power of what the gospel does. 
The power of the gospel is to set people free. The good news that I proclaim now to my friends and family that you're praying about, many of you, that we proclaim here as a church is that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins when we place our faith in him. And when we proclaim that, we proclaim forgiveness. We declare it and people are set free. And the opposite is true as well when I do not proclaim it. I withhold forgiveness. I withhold forgiveness. People are not led to the truth when I don't say it, when I don't get out of that room like God was calling those disciples to do. A world full of people are unable to know and trust Jesus if I, if our church, if we the people of God do not proclaim where forgiveness is found. And so he gives this really fascinating word to them to spark their interest in what they were about to do into their mission. Now, before I go farther into scene two, there's one other thing that might have scratched your attention when Jesus gave out the Holy Spirit. And that's this. Wasn't the Holy Spirit promised later? In Acts chapter 2, for those of you who know the flow of the text, you thought, wait a second, I I thought that didn't happen until Acts chapter 2, right? Where the Spirit is given in power, so the message is proclaimed, and people stepped out of a room and out of their, you know, their fear and anxiety, and they went out to the streets and started expressing the gospel in other languages, and all, all kinds of people of different ethnicities and cultures, they started coming to faith in Christ, and the church was born, Acts chapter 2, right? So what's the story here? John chapter 20 happens before Acts chapter 2. What's going on here? It's this. John 20 is the expression of the giving of life. When a person places their full allegiance into Jesus and comes out of their struggle and fear and anxiety and they place their faith fully, their allegiance fully into Christ, then Scripture tells us that God's spirit is given to us and we are a new creation in him. We are now new and gifted with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is giving them another physical demonstration of his promise to send the comforter, to give them the comforter. And that's what he does there. In Acts chapter 2, that Holy Spirit is given and it's a gift of the power of the spirit. Here, he's demonstrating that his presence, the Spirit's presence, is alive and well and with them. The work of the Holy Spirit to move people to faith in Christ and to express itself through these believers, that would happen in Acts chapter 2. So, they see Jesus face to face. These disciples do. And it's shocking and surprising and it creates in, some, in the text, it says they're full of joy. They're glad. And they've, they've heard that message repeatedly of peace to them. And they're just excited. And then scene two hits. Have you ever been so thrilled about something that's happened in your life? You just got to tell somebody about it. And so you, you want to tell your friends about this. And that's what happens to these disciples. Thomas wasn't there. I didn't want to tell him. 
So they get Thomas seen too in this text is that these disciples tell him, oh, we've seen the Lord. <laughs> we've seen Jesus. He's not in the grave anymore. He's alive. Can you believe that, Thomas? And then he just kind of pops their bubble of enthusiasm, excitement. Don't know if you've ever communicated your faith to someone and they're like, I doubt it. I don't believe that. And that's exactly what Thomas says. No, I don't, I don't believe you guys are telling stories. I won't believe until I actually see physical evidence in front of my face. I don't, I don't, I, I've got these doubts I'm still wrestling with. I need physical evidence. I'm not going to fully trust the Lord Jesus because I, I need to see it in front of my face. I'm, I'm still struggling with what you're telling me. I'm not going to fully believe it until I see it. Scene three is this huge relief for me. Because in scene three, there's something powerful communicated about my Lord. First, let me just say this. Doubt, like Thomas expressed, is real. Very few people I've met over the course of my life who fully place their confidence in Christ for a lifetime without wrestling with doubt, honestly, struggling with it. Well, sometimes not so honestly. Sometimes we bury it. We don't, we don't want to face it. We don't work through it, and it, it creeps in, and really we wrestle with our faith. But this is a relief to me because although doubt is real, the great truth in this text is that Jesus keeps pursuing people. He just, he keeps after Thomas. He didn't have to show up again, not in that context. He could have blown Thomas off like, okay, you don't believe? Tough. Where would that leave me or you? I'm so, I'm so grateful that Jesus comes in the scene three. Thomas is there. He's with his friends now. He's still doubting. He's still wrestling with his questions and doubts. And Jesus shows up. Now, let me say a word about doubt because there's all kinds of confusion, I believe, that people wrestle with when it comes to doubt. Doubt is not unbelief. Throughout the book of John, the thing that matters, the most important thing, is that we place our full allegiance in Jesus. We do not sit in the camp of unbelief. But doubt is neither in the camp of belief, faith, or in the camp of unbelief. It's here. One foot out, one foot in. It's not fully in the boat of faith because I, 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 I still feel like my security is here, but it's not in the boat. It's neither way. And that's important for us to understand. It's not unbelief. It stands between faith and and unbelief. It is, as scripture describes, double-mindedness. It's a person of a divided heart and a divided mind. The original language, dipsukos, dakrino, distazo, diagolatsomai, and miratsomai. These are words that all speak of a double mind or a double heart. They describe us. So, what do we do with that? 
Um, there was a season in my life, I had been a believer for a, quite a while, where I was really wrestling with unresolved doubts. And I didn't feel like I could speak them out. I could own them, I could work through them, honestly, because I was in ministry. That was a tough thing. How could I actually be honest with who I am and my wrestling? I'd lose my job. At least I felt like that. And I came across a writer who I really deeply appreciate who wrote about doubt. His name is Oz Guinness. And I have a quote here that I think is really significant as he writes about this topic in a book he wrote on doubt. There are two equal and opposite errors into which Christians are inclined to fall when thinking about doubt. On the one hand, those who are theologically liberal tend to be too soft on doubt, lionizing such notions as ambiguity and uncertainty, and verging on a spiritual permissiveness that becomes a slipway to unbelief. Unbelief was what Jesus was preaching against. It's what condemns us. It's what separates us and a relationship with God. Unbelief makes us an enemy of God. On the other hand, those who are theologically conservative tend to be too hard on doubt, demonizing the dire consequences of unresolved doubt and verging on a spiritual perfectionism that leaves doubters in such a state of guilt or despair that they dare not acknowledge their doubts to others or even to themselves. That's a huge danger for those of you who have trusted Christ and yet still struggle with your doubt, that you're not able to own it. We have these things that we call life groups where we would love for you to be honest with your struggle and your doubt. So other people can come alongside and spiritually mentor you through that where you can actually have real, true, healthy conversations about the struggles you might have, about the wrestling that you have. You don't want to stay here as a double-minded person because you make no progress. You are not going to go the direction God wants you to go unless you get all in. So the struggle is that we have this false idea that everybody here is spiritually perfect or doesn't have doubt or reservations. That's just not reality. In the scriptures, Guinness says, by contrast, we find a realistic yet healthy view of doubt which regards it as definitely serious, but not terminal. You don't want to just sit on your doubt in between camps. But it's not terminal. Understood properly, this biblical view sees the role of doubt as constructive to belief. I believe in doubt is therefore far more than a roundabout way of saying that there is no believing without doubting. And therefore that even in doubting, I believe. Lord, I doubt, but help my unbelief. I believe. I want to trust you and help me through my unbelief. A bold Christian affirmation is that because faith in Christ is true and fears no question or challenge, 
Doubt can be a stepping stone to a tougher, deeper faith. In this sense, as George MacDonald asserted, doubts are messengers of the living one to the honest. I love that. Our struggle, our wrestling, is designed to drive our faith deeper when we resolve our doubt and our struggles. It's to give us a true and honest faith, a deeper faith. Followers of Christ, Guinness goes on to say, are not simply fair-weather believers. They are realistic believers committed to truth. People who think in believing and believe in thinking, as Augustine expressed it. They are therefore like experienced pilots who can fly in bad weather as easily as in good, by night as well as by day, and upside down as well as right side up. Faith's rainy days will come and go, and dark nights of the soul may threaten to overwhelm. But safe flying is possible for those who have at least two things. A solid grasp of the instruments, that's God's truth and promises, and a canny realism about the storm and stress of doubt. Well put, isn't it? So Jesus is calling Thomas out of doubt and into the boat, into faith in him. He's inviting him in scene three. And the thing is, that Jesus lives to resolve our doubt. He rose from the dead so that we would not be stuck here or here, but so that we would get in, so we would climb into the boat of faith because it's going to take us some great places if we get in. People were wondering whether I could actually get out of the boat at the first service. I want to stay in here. So, he's calling us to be all in. But unless our doubts are resolved, they will either slip into active disbelief. Unless we deal with our doubts, eventually it will create disbelief in us. Or B, they will paralyze us by atrophying our faith. If my faith is not expressed, if I am not trusting in God every day and stepping out in faith, it will atrophy like a muscle I do not use. Faith is supposed to move. It's supposed to be used. So I can't sit in my doubt. What do I do? This passage, this example of Thomas helps me understand it. First, I face my doubts honestly. I name him. Thomas says, you know what? I, I got doubts. He says it to his friends. Here's my doubts. Unless I see firsthand evidence, concrete stuff, I will never believe. I'm not believing it. And that's why God knew him through and through and said, okay, let's, let's deal with that. Here's the evidence. He told his friends about it. Even though they were excited about what had happened to them, he was going to hold on to his doubts. So the Lord helped him through it. But he faced his doubts honestly. Second, don't just sit with your doubts. Seek actively to resolve your doubts. Seek to resolve your doubts. Listen 
to the word. Dive into God's word, examine it for yourself. Listen to the voice of God as he calls you into deeper faith. Don't just sit around on those questions or reservations you might have. Second, talk to somebody, a spiritual mentor, someone you trust. You can actually express without fear of judgment your reservations and your doubts about it. Have conversations about it. And third, examine. Examine the evidence for yourself. We have one of our small groups that just focuses on apologetics. For those of you who feel like you need to know intellectual evidence for the faith, that's what they do. They do it, and they meet on Friday nights, and they, they dive into great material. Seek them out. Perhaps your life group can be a place where you trust people enough, where you can have these spiritual discussions with people. But don't just sit on doubt. Seek to resolve your doubt. And then, when the evidence arrives, embrace faith. Thomas sees the evidence in front of him firsthand, and he gives this wonderful, really brief confession that really says it all. It's what Jesus had been calling his disciples to from the first time they laid eyes on him, the very beginning of John. My Lord, that is, you're the master of my life. And I've been holding on to my own stuff, my own selfishness, my own control. At least I thought I was in control. And I'm not. You are. You are the master. You are the Lord. And my God, you are divine, Jesus. He makes that confession. And he lets his doubts go. And gets fully into the boat of faith. And then the Lord makes this wonderful promise. Thomas, have, um, have you done that simply because you saw firsthand evidence? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Did you know that that's a promise for you? Designed by God specifically for you. Because you weren't in that room, unless I'm mistaken, you weren't in that room. And although we have confidence in the truth and reality of God's word, we weren't physically present in front of the living Lord. I have seen evidence of it firsthand in people's lives, but I did not see Jesus firsthand and able to touch him in his wounds. But there is a blessing of placing my confidence in him. I, I don't know what it, all it is because Jesus doesn't describe the whole blessing of it. But he does say there is, a blessing. there is a blessing for those who place their confidence, who stop living lives in two camps as double-minded, who stop and get out of their struggle and get into the boat fully of faith, to jump all in. That's the call of God for us. So what's the take-home? What do you want to walk home with today? Here it is. Stop sitting on the fence. Don't be double-minded. Stop living that way. Resolve your doubts. Actively seek to resolve the struggle of doubts. Don't let them undermine your faith 
or make it weak. Be a man, be a woman of great faith. That's what the Lord Jesus calls us to. And start living for God. You can only do that as you're all in the boat. You can't live for the Lord actively in both camps. You have to be all in. Now, would you please close your eyes to give each other privacy? I'm going to call you just to be honest before the Lord and name your doubts just to Him. This is, Lord, this is where I'm wrestling, where I struggle. It's because of my fears, because of whatever. Name it out to Him. It's not like it's going to shock him or surprise him. Ask him to do the work that needs to be done so that you can be all in, a person of faith in the boat. If you have never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, this is what leads to forgiveness and wholeness and health for you. Not a set of spiritual exercises or looking religious. It is about embracing faith wholeheartedly in the Lord Jesus who has come and lived and died for you and risen again so that you might know life. And just in the quietness right now where we're sitting, I, I just ask you to be honest before the Lord and say, oh Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, my doubts, my struggles, Lord, but I want to place my confidence fully in you. Forgive me, cleanse me, make me new. Just put that in your own language where you sit. If you've taken a step with God this morning, I'd encourage you to share it with someone, um, someone who brought you perhaps, or another person. Staff and other people will be around. We'd love to have a spiritual conversation with you. Um, but... Uh, don't be a person in two camps. Embrace faith. We pray for God's power to help move us that direction. Father, I'm just so grateful for my friends here and brothers and sisters in you. And you know us thoroughly. You're not surprised by any of our reservations or the things that can undercut our faith, our short-sightedness, our self-centeredness. Lord, we're praying this morning that you would move us to be a people who place all our confidence in you so that we can be a people who fulfill the mission you've got us to be sent out once, to be proclaiming forgiveness of sins 
and health and wholeness through the good news of Jesus Christ. And for those of my friends here gathered this morning who have placed their faith in you afresh, maybe for the very first time, I pray you would bless them with the confidence, with life of your spirit, and they would have assurance. You would move other people into our lives, Lord, to deepen their faith. We trust you would do this good work for your own glory in us. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Bridges Community Church. If you want to find out more about Bridges and who we are, please check out our website at bridgescc.org.